needles and moxa and all the different things, and I wasn't quite sure what of the techniques outside of acupuncture that I might personally be interested in. There are several, and I guess at that point I started getting interested in cupping and using the cups. And I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I saw my acupuncturist the other day. She reminded me that self-censoring and second-guessing myself is a pernicious kind of stagnation. It's an internally generated vapor lock on what should be a system that catches wind like a well-trimmed sail that skims you through the mysterious kidney waters of deep knowing. She did not soothe the liver. Not at all. She opened the creaky spigots and sent a condensed blast of Midwest Stormfront through the collaterals, juiced up the organ with some fresh blood, and then sent me out to drive it like I stole it. Unencumbered from restrictive metallic opinion, and for a moment free of the gravity of dogma and duty, there's a kind of liberation in the spring when the light is just so, and the blooming trees and chartreuse dotted branches, they shimmer like a cat about to pounce. Spring is most assuredly not a time for half-hearted measures. It's the perfect moment in the year to be unapologetically authentic, to take a big bite that might fail because that's a bite worth taking. The sound of the liver, we are told, is shouting. But do you know what it is shouting? Because if it's shouting anger, violence, injustice, or division, then you know there's a blockage that needs attention. Because the liver can also shout, it's my lucky day, or competition, I'm the competition. That is when you know that the general is saddled up and ready to go. It's the perfect time of year to put the Tom Robbins filter on your AI and ask it what you should do today, or resolve to learn from your mistakes by making a lot of them. Because you don't know when your screw-ups just might put you right in front of your next big thing. In 1993, I got a piece of advice in a horoscope. It ended with saying, if you're going to try to get away with something, might as well try to get away with everything. That is the liver talking. It takes a leap of faith to see an opportunity that's not quite in reach, but could be if you leap. It takes the open and expansive spirit of the liver to see around the corner of the future. It can give you a glimpse of the destination as well, but only a glimpse. And that, if you have enough gallbladder courage, you can make the leap that will change your destiny. In this conversation with Kevin First, we discuss creating something that is not present yet, but could be. How there's a way to connect the dots of our disgruntlement and desire for something better, and how to make a difference in the lives of others and our community. In Kevin's case, it's about creating something that's functional and beautiful, handmade cups. Our conversation is coming up right after Shop Talk, the clinical nuts and bolts portion of the digital campfire here. It's all practical material on treating patients using acupuncture or herbs, along with a smattering of the how-to of running that fantastic machine for social good and change, your practice. But first, a word from the folks who make it possible 
for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com 
slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. I'm Michael Max, and today I want to share some thoughts with you here on Shop Talk about practice and being a practitioner. I want to share with you a Chinese character that has had a big impact on my practice and really beyond that, my life, because it's so fundamental to what we are as humans and how it interweaves into our relationships with others. The character is Ting. Ting, first tone. Ting, kind of sounds like a bell ringing. Ting. Ting means listen. In modern, simplified Chinese, it depicts a mouth to an ear. But in the traditional form, Ting is made up of the characters for ear, eyes, heart, along with the character Wang, which translates as king or sovereign. And then up at the very top, there's this little cross at the top, which I've come to see as a representation of the intersection of Xintian and Hotian, pre and post heaven, which is to say the present moment, the right here and now. That's ting. That's what's involved with listening. I suspect you find it makes sense that listening, really listening, Indeed, is a multisensory experience. After all, most people can read body language and tone of voice with fairly accurate sense of acuity. Maybe you've had the experience with listening for what's not being said, especially if you grew up in certain kinds of families. That's also a kind of attending to the moment and all that we might find in it. It's also an important kind of listening. One of the reasons I often consider and lean on Ting is that it reminds me to pay attention with all of my senses, including the odd bit of synesthesia where more than one sense combines with another. You get what feels like flashes of intuition or penetrating insight as several senses commingle together. Something else kind of comes through in your awareness. I'm starting off with this little riff on listening because what I really want to talk about here today is the how we are in clinic. Not the what we know, although, of course, you have to have a good toolkit. I'm more interested in exploring the how you are rather than the what you know. Something that is helpful, especially when people say that they're better, is to find out how they're better. It's a wasted opportunity if you nod and pat yourself on the back for a job well done. You need to confirm that the patient is better, and more importantly, in what ways are they better? All the knowing and skill, that's, that's important stuff. But listening and inquiry, that's what guides the what we do. Something that is helpful, especially when people say that they're better, is to find out how they're better. 
I really see it as a wasted opportunity if you simply nod and pat yourself on the back for a job well done. It's important to confirm that it's true that the patient is better. And more importantly, in what ways are they better? So when asking about digestion or sleep, and they say fine, it's important to find out what fine actually means. When they say they are good or the condition that they came in for is better, unpack that. Better in what way? How do they know they're better? What does good actually look like for them? Patients are often surprised when you ask them how they know they're better. Pay attention to what they have to say. Now, sometimes people get better, but they have a story about why they're better that might catch you off guard and it might even make you angry. Sometimes our patients will attribute their getting better to their chiropractor or a physical therapist or maybe some drink that their cousin recommended. I found it's helpful not to argue and don't try to suggest that acupuncture was the source of their relief. Instead, ask more questions about the change and see if it might be related to what you did. Our patients, they have their own story and your story is that acupuncture is very effective, but that might not be your patient's story. What's more, it's not our job to educate them. It's our job to listen, to follow, to understand the patient from their own point of view. I think you'll get further with them if you do this. If you correct them in their perspective, they may be polite in the moment, but they're not going to be so forthcoming in the future. And Notice, too, if your ego is wanting to pipe up and have some credit for the patient's healing. Remember, our patients are the ones who heal themselves, even if they want to give the credit to somebody else. So back to that character, Ting. Listening. Listening also means using your eyes. Notice how your patients move, how they get on or off the table, how they walk in your door how they get up from sitting. Notice what your eyes tell you and what the patient tells you when you ask them about things that you can readily observe. Lots of times, people are very out of touch with their experience. Other times, they will tell you things because they want you to feel good. So trust your eyes. Now, that all-important portion of the character Ting, the heart, it brings up this question for me. How are you with heartbreak? This one is slippery, and I think it is essential to being able to do this work in any kind of long, ongoing way without hardening the heart. I know for myself that I want to feel like I'm capable and that I'm helpful. I like seeing patients get better and live better lives, and I like the feeling of being intelligent, capable, and effective practitioner. But I think it's important to be cautious about this because it's all too easy to put unspoken demands on our patients so that we can feel good about ourselves. For me, this shows up when I complain to myself about the patient being non-compliant or I blame their diet or maybe the amount of cola they drink or how they overexert themselves and that all this is the reasons that they're not getting better. I notice how my heart sinks a bit when I hear that there's been no change in the reason 
that they first walked into my office three or four treatments ago. It's very hard not to take this personally. I don't think I'm alone in this. Check in with yourself. Check in right now. If your patients are not getting better in some marked way, how do you end up feeling about yourself? If you completely don't care, you might be a little short on compassion. If you care a lot and are enslaved to how the patients feel about the treatment and you, well, then you're enmeshed in a way that has you looking to the patient for confirmation that you're an okay person. That's both unfair to the patient, and it leaves you as a practitioner without the necessary distance that's also required to be an effective helper. This is where some cultivated indifference, some empathetic non-attachment to results is very helpful. I first got this idea in a conversation with Damo Mitchell. That was over in episode 290. I think it was in part two. This doesn't mean that you don't care. It means that your sense of self-worth and feelings about who you are as a practitioner are not dependent on the progress or not of your patients. It's a bit like having the heart and mind of a true scientist. You know, real scientists are as happy to get a yes as a no. They're looking to discover if their hypothesis holds water or not. There's no such thing as failure when you're a scientist. There's just gathering information. It's not about being cold-hearted so much as it is being able to be stable with your heart. There's a line that I've heard from the Upanishads. I can't remember who quoted it, but I run into it from time to time. It says something to the effect of, we are entitled to our labor, but not to the fruits of our labor. To neither consider ourselves to be the cause of the results of our activities, nor be attached to inaction. Yeah, that's a tall order. And I think helpful in the how we are in clinic. And this is what I'm getting at when I think of bringing some indifference to the outcome of our treatments. It's so that we have some breathing room, so that we can inquire into what else might be going on for the patient, as well as to keep our ego from getting too entangled into the healing enterprise. I've got one more thing I want to say about the how of clinical work. It's very much a yin-yang proposition. We get the joy of being with people as they change and their situation improves. But there are many times when we're invited to accompany them into the downturns, into the cancers no longer in remission, through the miscarriages and the disappointments that arise when our treatments fail. As much joy as you might feel when there's good news, so too there will be times of heartbreak. There's a kind of burden that goes with being a practitioner, and it's worth being on good speaking terms with that sense of burden. I've found it can be a trusted advisor. Well, I hope you found this little rumination on Ting and the how we are in clinic to be helpful and perhaps investigating the next time that you go to work. I'm in the process of putting together an eight-week exploration on the art of listening and practice. We'll be covering the material that I spoke about here, along with the three big shadow aspects of our work. Those would be money, power, and authority. We'll take a look at our values and how we're bringing them into our work, or not. 
along with an exploration of the path that has brought you to the healing enterprise. Because usually there are some troubles that got us to where we are. And those troubles, along with the how we've grown through them or not, that can have a pretty big impact on our clinical work. Finally, we'll take a look at our practice of practice, the business models and practices that support the work that you do. If this sounds inviting to you, then email me at together at geological.com. Let me know about your interest. I'll get you on the mailing list and keep you posted as we get close to opening up registration. Kevin First, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate being here. I am I'm always delighted to talk to the people I talk to. I think, man, I'd like to do a geological talk with someone. It's always because there's something that has like got my attention, something that got sparked. And you and I have known each other for, God, I don't know, 10 years or so? I mean, a while. Yeah, just about 10 years. Yeah. And uh, even though we've never met like in person, we've kind of known each other through the school that we attended. And, uh, you know, I know some of your background and your history with getting a practice going and the things that interest you. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating is that you're not just an acupuncturist, you're kind of uh, like a social entrepreneur. You care for the communities that you're in. You want to see them thrive. You want to see them do better. You're actually in a part of the world that's a, a little bit depressed. I'm going to let you talk more about that in a second. And one of the things that you're working on right now are cups, like cups that we use in our work and like made right here, gosh darn in America cups. And they're beautiful and they're like artwork. They're wonderful. And they're not made of clunky glass and crappy glass like you get from Asia. They're actually made out of really, really beautiful glass. And so we're here to talk a bit about that. Thank you. That's very nice. Yeah, we live in Western New York. I moved. So this project started an hour and a half south. So where we are right now is we're in the Buffalo area, it, what's called the South Towns. But an hour and a half south of where I am is um, a little village, which is where we started our practice nine years ago. And that uh, is called Alfred, New York. And that's a big part of this whole story, I suppose you could say. So I'll be talking a lot about Alfred and sort of the energy of that place and the experiences there a little bit are all part of the story of how this thing came to be. Let's hear about it. I don't know much about Alfred other than, I mean, some years ago I was involved in a little bit of glass blowing myself. I did that work when I was younger. And uh, there's like a school in Alfred. It's like one of these schools for glass, for glass technology and ceramics. Yeah. So there's um, Alfred State. And that's part of the SUNY system. And then there's Alfred University. It's a technical kind of issue, but I think it's the program is technically part of Alfred State College, but it's hosted at Alfred University. So there's kind of a bridge between the colleges there. But anyhow, it's a very tiny village at, nestled in a sea of technically Appalachia. Now, I think there's other parts of the country that are more traditionally thought of as that, but this is designated as Appalachia in the state of New York. So it is a very rural place. And we came from Seattle. So 
I graduated in 2013, and now my now wife and I were looking to start a practice together, and we sort of just took over this practice of this man who'd been retiring, or who was retiring, and uh, in Alfred, and that's how we, we got out there. So you went to Alfred because there was a practice, and you went there to specifically to practice acupuncture because you bought someone's practice, basically. Yeah, we took over for his practice. That's right. And then we were there for several years. And up until COVID, I'd been driving down one day a week, but um, that sort of shut us down. So I haven't been actively working in there. But around that same time, this whole project really started to take off, although the origins of it was when we were living down there. And for the years we were there living in this small village, we got to meet many, many, many people and a lot of the artists and the craftspeople. So that was part of it. So um, these are handcrafted cups. I don't know. I mean, why don't you lead me to the next step here, Michael? I don't know what else to say about Alfred. We just um, landed there. I mean, how did you get interested in making cups of all things? Well, Having graduated, you know, we learn several different techniques, and I never would have expected to be interested in cupping to this level at that time. It was surprising, but we were in Alfred and just starting to work on people and just starting our practice, starting our clinical experience. And I got all the different equipment from all the big vendors. You know, I got a cup set, I got needles and moxa and all the different things. And I wasn't quite sure what of the techniques outside of acupuncture that I might personally be interested in. There are several. And I guess at that point, I started getting interested in cupping and using the cups. And the patients that we saw in that area were very different from the patients in Seattle that we saw through the school clinic there. They seemed to be larger. They were more obese people was sort of the the norm kind of person that would come in and unhealthy in ways that your typical person coming into the Seattle clinics, you know, they weren't like that. It was a different level, a different experience and um, cupping for the back pain and for lung issues and stuff. I started doing more and more of that in Alfred. So why did you stay with it? I mean, you know, I get it. When we first get out of school, we take the thing that we think we want to do. We buy those supplies. Maybe we buy supplies of things that, you know, we want to try, but we're not sure. We're going to have it in our clinic just in case. You know, so there you are. You got your cups. You're starting to use them. You've got a very different population, probably fewer piercings and tattoos as well. Maybe some real differences in not just lifestyle, but belief systems and all kinds of stuff. I, I imagine rural Appalachia is a different country. That's for sure. So you're seeing different kinds of people. You got cups. You're starting to use them. What kept you sticking with it? What kept you like, okay, like I'm going to use this some more? Well, it's a great technique. I mean, it's, and even now I still think about at times I'll use gua sha, at times I'll do twina. And every person gets a different sort of seems to take to the different therapy better. So for some people, although I would say, and I do go in cycles, but I'd say for the most part, the majority of times, if I'm going to do any kind of manual thing outside of acupuncture itself, cupping tends to be the first thing that I'm going to do. It just seems like, especially the running cupping, I guess I should say that. So here where we are, and I don't know how it is in St. Louis, but there is, and these cups 
are good for any type of cupping, like stationary cupping. But what I do for the most part and what I learned, you know, with Jason Robertson as my primary cupping teacher in Seattle was running cupping. I'm sure there's other terms for it, but the gliding cupping where the back is oiled. And um, it just always seems to wow people. Rarely is there an experience where people aren't just kind of get silent and they feel like, the experience is profound. It feels so much better. It's like a massage, but it's a lot better than a massage. All of these things. I'm sure you hear this a lot in your own clinic. So yeah, it's somewhat easy to do. It just feels like an extra step that I can do. And I do it on a lot of people. So the germ of my interest was from being in school and then seeing some of these difficult cases and doing the cupping on them. I think just grew the interest even more. And then I started to realize, well, gosh, I'll do these cups. And, you know, the cups that I was buying from the vendors, Lhasa or Crane or whatever, I just didn't like them. And this is a little bit more about me and just my life, I guess. But I have a long kind of irritation with lousy or poorly made factory produced kind of products. I don't know how to say this. We've talked about this a few times. And I remember the moment, this was over 20 years ago. I think it was in the 1990s, but it was like a Walmart moment. So Walmart was really growing and strong-arming itself into society at that time. And I remember going in there and buying a mirror for my car, for the Pfizer, just so I could look at myself maybe before I'm going in somewhere. And I bought the thing at Walmart and I put it on the car and it immediately broke within a second. I just put it on and the pressure on the metal was so cheap that it broke and snapped right off. And I was already interested in crafts and arts and individually made things, even from being a teenager. But at that time, I really thought, wow, this is just so awful. I mean, what is the world like if this is the kinds of things that we get. Now, the cups, so that's like my personal feelings about mass-produced things, particularly from these kind of huge big box stores. Well, and especially, maybe we should clarify this a bit, because there's some mass-produced stuff that's actually pretty dang good. I'm thinking of computers, like, you know, the ones we're using right now. Some of that's pretty good. But then there's a the mass-produced stuff that really, it's just like garbage, garbage with a price tag on it. Yes. Of course, there's well-made stuff, you know, that's why places like Target and other places, they exist. And, and I go into these places not very frequently, but we're talking about a more, not a computer though. This is a different kind of tool, you know, with the cups. Yeah. You know, the cups, I mean, anyone could look at their cup. You could pull one out and look at it. You'll see the glass is like really uneven. There's like sometimes little stones in the glass and weird colorations, but like usually just like globs of glass. It's like, God, did they not blow this cup out all the way? Yeah. I know, knowing you a little bit, that you have some background in glass. I don't. So I couldn't speak to maybe some technical aspects, but I have looked at the factory-made glasses or cups under special filters in Alfred University, and I was shown the um, imperfections and the weak areas of the glass. And that's just how they're going to be because of the way that they're made. So what were you seeing? What kind of filters were they using and what were you seeing? That's super cool. That's really geeky. It is. Yeah, it's great. And 
this is one of the big pluses, you know, working through the university like this is access to this kind of thing. So, you know, it's deep in the belly of the facility there. They have a very old, I'll say, 60s era seeming large machine that you put the cups or whatever that you want to look at in. You can see just visually, I'll call them rainbows of discoloration in the glass and how it was explained to me because we brought some cups that had been handmade and some of the cups that I had just bought off the vendors and the mass-produced cups you know, he was showing me the many weak areas and he was explaining this is, you know, where the glass, as you said, didn't quite melt evenly or whatever. And like if you drop the cups and they broke and you and they landed in any of these large rainbow areas, they were chatter. The handmade cups, I can't say they're invincible, they're not, but they are kind of more workhorses. They're more sturdy. And that's one of their big assets, one of their big characteristics that I like and other people that have used them like, is you can drop them, and they might break, but chances are just a normal drop. They're not going to break. They're going to survive that. So I can throw a little bit of glass-blowing background on this and what might be happening. What they're probably seeing with that are strain patterns that come from a process called annealing. So annealing is a process where after you've blown a piece of glass... You have to cool it down slowly. I think we've all had the experience, maybe you put hot water in a cold glass and crack, the glass cracks because it expands too fast and it cracks. So the same thing can happen when it's cooling. It's going to cool from the outside to the inside. And if you cool it too quickly, it'll build these strain patterns in, which is, I suspect, what you were saying. And if the glass is uneven, in particular, you're going to have these problems. The annealing process is when they finish blowing it, they put it into an oven It's not so hot that the glass melts, but it's hot enough that the glass is still really hot, like probably 900-ish degrees or so, as I recall. Like I can't remember. It's been a long time since I blew glass. And then after you get done with your glass blowing for the day, you let it soak at that temperature so everything is nice and evenly warm, and then you cool it down slowly over a period of time. And then the glass has like incredible integrity to it. Because you don't have these strain patterns. And like you're saying, a piece of poorly made glass will break easily. It may be thick, but because of these strain patterns, it's going to be much more fragile. Whereas a piece of glass might be even thinner, but it's cooled correctly. It's going to be much, much stronger. Right. There is that, as you said, much better than myself. It's also just that, I guess, I hope that I won't regret saying it, but maybe the energy of the thing. Mm. Well, hey, man, we're acupuncturists. We know that how something is thought about and worked with makes a difference. I think so. This is, again, just my opinions and my experience. But in my own life, I do find that care and intention makes a big difference. So what I like about the cups is that I know who made them. I know where they were made. I know that he had a certain intention and process to that. In fact, part of the sort of arrangement we have with he and a few other people that are working on these is that they want to be doing them. I didn't ever want someone to just kind of just be doing it because it's a job or whatever. There's an intention of interest within them. The people are committed to the project. I know them well for many years. We have a relationship and 
their, I'll say, love or their intention or their commitment or their art, their craft is put into that cup as well as the other things we have. We have an oil, we have some ceramics too, but you know, we're just talking mainly about the cups. That's in there and that's something that you're not going to get in the factory made stuff because they're just made in large racks, etc. So it's a completely different situation. And Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I was going to say it's a different kind of product. It is a different product. I read a book a few years back called Clapton's Guitar, story of a guy who is a guitar builder. In fact, he lives in Appalachia. I think he's in West Virginia. can't remember his name. Henderson. Someone Henderson. Evidently, like a Henderson guitar is like a thing to have. And it, it could take 10 years for him to make the guitar because he'll like do it as he's getting around to doing it. Thank you very much. Great guitar maker, but you don't rush Mr. Henderson. And uh, evidently, there were two guitars made for Eric Clapton, one that Eric would play and one, I guess, for a charity or something. And uh, the author of the book was following the process of like how this guitar gets made. And because, uh, you know, Henderson makes a guitar in the way that Henderson makes a guitar. It's got to be the right day. And, you know, he's got to like think about the wood and goes out and collects wood. You know, it, it's his process. Anyway, one of the lines in the book, this is someone talking about Henderson. And this guy was asked, so what goes into making a good guitar? And the guy says, well, I th- there's about 700 different things. I go into making a guitar, but the most important thing is the mind of the guitar maker as they're making the guitar. So, yeah. So, like, what goes into a good cup? Well, the mind of the glass blower as they're making the cup. So, you've got that in your cups. That, that's in there. You know, and that's a good reason to do anything when you come right down to it. But I, I want to step back, like, another step or two. Like, why bother getting involved in an enterprise like this? Because... You know, it's time and effort and research and like, why did you want to get started making the best cups in the world? Well, I don't know if I would, I aspire to have them be that. I will say that they are an evolving process also, which is wonderful. Our lead cup maker is, I think we have a long standing relationship and the plan is to keep evolving it, tweaking them making new ideas, things like that. So what we have is what we have today, but we have ideas of some research and stuff that we can keep working on them. But 
to answer your question, I think um, it's a little bit accidental. Like near the end of when we were going to leave Alfred, I started getting a little bit frustrated with the cups that I had. And they work fine. And I think that millions of people use them. There's nothing really inherently wrong with them outside of the things that we've been talking about. You know, they're mass produced and we don't know the the essence of the person who was making them, which I do think for myself has an impact on what I'm using. Because acupuncture and these manual therapies are very intimate. And I want to be using something that I feel like this guest of honor that's my patient who's coming in, I want to use, just give them the best, the red carpet treatment. That's what I would want. So, you know, I like to live a lot through the golden rule. Do you know the golden rule? You want to treat others, treat others how you'd want to be. Well, you know, anyhow, I can't assume that people know that. So I do have a background in philosophy, which is why I know how I know some of these kind of quirky things. But the golden rule is just, it's like a moral code. And I, I resonate with it. I appreciate it. And I do try to live by it. I feel like I do and we do in our clinic and through this project too, is you just treat others how you would want to be treated. And if I was coming maybe scared or nervous about a acupuncture, never had it, you know, going into this new place, I would want to feel like, hey, my hand's being held and I'm get, being given just the best effort with the best kind of materials and products that I could receive in that experience. And that's what I think we've got with the cups. So it's like a gourmet experience. It is, you know, it's cupping. It's the same in some ways as, as if you just use the, the regular glass cups that you would get anywhere. But it's even more so, I think a more special experience. It is for me using that, and that's going to affect the energy of the treatment because I doing the work, doing the cupping, and I do cupping every day, several times a day usually, I do feel kind of elevated using these cups. And I think that transfers to the person receiving the treatment. But anyhow, in terms of the cups, like the initial idea with it, you know, I was already doing running cupping or regular cupping a little bit, I had these glass cups, and the main thing I would say is they fell off a lot, and that was super annoying. Also, working in Allegheny County, which is the poorest county in New York State, I worked briefly in a hospital there, and, you know, I couldn't do a fire cupping there, but they did allow me to buy one of the pump cup sets. And I remember some people came in, and I was working a little bit in this hospital and I was doing the pump cups and those things just constantly fell off. They never stayed on, you know, like the box, they're like little suitcases. So that was frustrating. But then also just the regular glass cups, they just didn't seem to get that good a cling on certain people. And I thought, well, here we are in Alfred and we know a good array of people. And it was just an artist. I think she was coming in to the clinic and we sort of, had a conversation with her. She was moving away at the time and uh, showed her the cups. And I said, well, do you think this is even possible to make? And we talked to her about that for a while. And then she moved away and, you know, and that relationship ended, but we um, kept the idea alive. And then not too long later, I spoke directly with the director of the glass, glass program at Alfred, who's a guy kind of about my age. And, um, you know, I knew him a little bit. 
very friendly person, Angus Powers, and explained what I was interested in, showed him in the cups, and then he made some prototypes, and we started using the prototypes, and lo and behold, they did work better. And I did enjoy using them more. I did feel like there were certain things about them that just worked better. And people said, hey, these feel really good. And then that would be one thing just to kind of use them for myself. Like that, I guess that's a good question is uh, how did all this, uh, the rest of this rigmarole develop? And it, it really has been that over several years now. I mean, I have a large collection of cups for myself. I must have 20 kind of unique different types of cups that have been made. But then a couple of years ago, we hosted some classes with Martha Lucas, who I think you had on your program. Yeah, she came. She's a friend and a teacher. And she came and we hosted her for a pulse diagnosis uh, seminar in our clinic. And we had several people from Canada and from other parts of Western New York and Pennsylvania. And they all started using the cups. And they were like, hey, you know what? These things are great. So I started thinking, well, these cups would be nice to make. Actually, I kept thinking, why hasn't anyone done this? Like, I was always thinking that somebody would do it, and eventually enough years passed and no one was doing it, and I thought, well, I guess I could do it because I do have them and they work well. So I started feeling, and at this point I feel like a responsibility to people because I, again, it's a little bit of the golden rule, given the opportunity to use or buy something that's just like the basic kind of low-end model or something that was very, very special and very thoughtfully made. It depends on the price, but I would most likely buy, especially the older I get, buy something that is handmade, handcrafted, unique. I did it with a gua sha tool. There's a man that makes gua sha tools. So I do some gua sha and I no longer use the plastic fish. I use the copper made gua sha tool. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. It's fairly easy to find. He's in, um, I think, Portland. Mark. Yeah, that's his name. Well, you know, I think there might be some overlap in the stories. One of those things of like, uh, well, you know, someone should do something about this. Huh, I really think someone should do something about this. Oh, maybe it's up to me to do something about this. I mean, Mark has a background in, in jewelry making and, and metalwork and, and just kind of a, like a hands-on make stuff sort of dude. So there's that as well. But, you know, I, I really get you. I really feel you with uh, like, hey, how come someone isn't doing something about this problem? And you sit with it for a bit and you realize maybe I'm the one that's supposed to do something about it. There's another piece that I want to explore with you because, you know, again, over the years, we've had various conversations about medicine, about practice, ethics, community, how the world works, all that, you know, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things that I know about you, and you might just be like too dang humble to admit it, is you've got a deep concern for the community that you live in. And I remember you talking about that you're living in this very depressed part of the United States, and you'd like to see if you could do something in some way that would help with that. And so here you've got cups that are being made in this part of the United States. It's fairly depressed, as I recall. Did I get that right? Do I have that right? It's extremely depressed. Yeah, that's part of the reason. We couldn't really stay there. I mean, we could stay there if we really wanted to struggle, but we couldn't. And population is decreasing. It's decreasing in New York State for a lot of reasons, but it's especially decreasing in places like that. 
I think that's a national trend, though, where the most rural places tended to have population loss. Like the golden rule, it's a part of my life, I think. And we don't live in Alfred. It's still fundamentally a part of our life. Many, many people we know there. And this evolved into a company, I guess, a very small company, but it is technically a company. And it's centered in, it's headquartered in Allegheny County in Wellsville, and uh, which is not far from Alfred. And the people that are involved, they're all down there. And I love those people. And they are, and that is another aspect to this. And it's, it is the cups, but it's a few other things too. But the energy of what I've intended to do with this is yes, be supportive. It's not just about the product. I guess I'm saying that like if it was made, you know, and up in New York city or something, that would be a whole different story. It wouldn't be a bad thing at all, but it is very uniquely special to me and maybe others that in purchasing any of this stuff or in getting involved with this, they are all made. Everything is made in extreme rural part of the United States, right here in Western New York. And that is uh, a very meaningful um, sentiment to me. You know, again, this is, it's not like they're sort of my extended family. And so I definitely feel that way with several of the people. I care for them. I know their lives. I know their stories. I know their families. And I didn't just like put an ad out, hey, I'm looking for some ceramicists in Allegheny County at all. There were specific people that I knew and really cared for and had relationships with. And those are the people that we're working with. So it's all kind of bundled together in good chi. Yeah. You know, the past few years with, you know, COVID and all that, supply chains and international trade. And I think a lot of us have rethought in some ways what's important. And I think many of us, especially in the particular profession that we're in, have concerns about the impact we're making on the world, both positive and negative. Can we do something to be part of the solution? Can we do something to make whatever little corner of the world is ours a little bit greener, a little bit better, a little more enlivened, a little more gentle, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And uh, do you hear about poverty in the United States? You know, I live in the city. I live in St. Louis. So, you know, I hear about urban problems more. I hear about urban poverty, but you, know, you don't hear so much about rural. And, you know, I think there's another piece too. I, and I know I've been guilty of this, thinking about, oh, those people out in the countryside, those conservative redneck, well, they, maybe they deserve the troubles they have, you know, because they're just so dang close-minded and blah, blah, blah. I know, I know I've had biases toward the rural side of our country, and, and yet there's a lot of dang suffering out there. And when it comes to opportunities for like, you know, economic livelihood, they're just, there's not a lot. We're fortunate that we, you know, we live in a time where we're like more connected than ever. So, you know, here you are, Western New York, the Allegheny Mountains, right? It's like the foothills. This is not where we currently live, but about an hour south of here. Yeah, you get into those. You get into it and it's, yeah, you're helping to restore an economy in a small way, doing something with quality. Well, we're certainly trying. Again, I so many important things happened in our lives down there. You know, we had, I became a parent down in Alfred. We got married in Alfred. 
started our practice and Alfred, all the important milestones of our lives were down there. And it's just a very, very special place. Now, this is not just an Alfred. That's sort of, well, that's where the glass comes from. Anyhow, the glass is made, is there, but other people are involved outside of Alfred. It's just that region down there. And, you know, I, I might over if this evolves or develops, other locations might become part of it. But the rural, I'll call like underserved, rural, kind of forgotten corners of the country have always interested me. I always sniff them out, find them. I often will live in places like that. And um, yeah, it's just somehow it resonates with me. And I'm very pleased that these are made there and that gives a, a special energy to them. And I'm anyhow, I'm proud of the whole project. So this is a kind of home. This is there's a sense of place and belonging that goes with this project. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean if you look at our website, which is um it's live, certain things aren't quite turned on, but I tell the stories of everybody who's a part of it. And I guess one strategy could have been, and I thought about it, just saying nothing, you know, about the people. But like, that's the exact opposite of what I'm actually trying to do a little bit as I'm celebrating those who, it's the people. The people are the important thing. So rather than just say, well, I'm not going to say who's our cup maker, it's a secret, you know, (laughs) that's not what we did. He's right there, you know, with his picture and, and everything else. And that's how it is. And um, can I at least mention the the other parts of it? We've got... You know, yeah, I want to know the other parts of it. And I also, you know, again, and I know you're involved in it. I mean, it was your idea, the way that you put it together. And I also want to hear, like, what goes into making a cup? Like, tell us about the process. Well, we've got them down now pretty well to a standard shape and size. There is a mold which I have for the different shapes. The cups are surprisingly difficult to make. That's one thing I can say about them because there's not a lot of people that make things like this. I think, you know, people make small objects and indeed we have had another glass artist make cups. I'm looking at one right now, but those are more asymmetric, I'll say. They're beautiful and I like them and I use them for certain things to do cupping. But to really get that strong kind of workhorse cup, these the kind of industrial handmade but in an industrial setting, I think that's the way to go. It is an industrial setting. So I guess that's one thing is it's not like a little shop. We have had cups made in a little shop with a small kiln and all this stuff. And Those are good cups, but those are not like the quality of cups that I wanted. The cups that we have are made in Alfred University, and they're you just walk into this chamber that is awe-inspiring. I wish I could show you. I have pictures, and we have a couple of pictures up on the on the web. Yeah, we'll send people to your website. There'll be uh, information on the show notes page, so people can just click right on through. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. But the it's a large industrial setting. Again, the glass is poured into molds that I have for the different shape. As it's been explained to me, cups are actually the bell or the body of the cup. That's what's molded. But the real heart of why I think the cups ultimately kind of work better than the other cup is in the mouth 
of the cup. The cup is differently flared, I would say, than a factory-produced cup. And the flare can have some variation to it. It is handcrafted, so it's not just like rubber stamped. It can't be that way. But most of the glass artists are used to making drinking vessels. And in a drinking vessel, you want the mouth of your wine glass to be very, 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 very thin. And that is not what you want to do on a cup. So as a project, as it was explained to me, this is uh, not an easy project for a glass maker to make because it's counterintuitive to what they would normally be doing for drinking vessels. No, but you're right. You're right. You want, on something that you're drinking out of, you generally want it thin and you want it to feel good. Yeah, you want that lightweight kind of, it tinks if you clink it with another one, but it doesn't break, you know, all of that. You're right. A cup is different and it is counterintuitive if you're used to making a thin lip on something. It's like you have to go back to when you were a beginner and you didn't know how to make a thin lip. Yes. And I I have lots of examples of cups that didn't work out. And I can tell you, it takes a while, years really, to make, to work through some of these kinks. Like a lot of times the old cups were heavy, really heavy. Well, I've got some super heavy cups to make the cup so it doesn't like that. I don't remember the word. uh, I'll just say the hat, you know, the top of the cup, not the mouth, but the opposite end. On the factory made cups, those they have sort of a, a cap in place there, so they lay perfectly flat. Well, the oldest cups that I have just were rounded, so that would sort of be the normal way to do it. But you know, I try to. I've asked him in the best way possible to make kind of a flat landing pad for it, so they can sit mouth up relatively stably, and they do. But all of that's kind of hard. Like that takes a little bit of finagling there from the artist. And trying to make it even, you know, and trying to make the taper just so and the flare. But I think that the flare, the big thing is the flare. You can have a lot of flare and some of the, you know, prototypes have a lot of flare. or You can have very little flare and that sort of feels more sharp. But if you have just the right flare, which is more flare than the factory made cups, then there's like this magical degree of flair that you can get on that, that in my experience, the cup really stays very, very solidly on a person. You can put it on top of a shoulder, you can put it right in the side of a neck, and it's just not going to go anywhere. If you've got it that strong enough, you might not want it that strong, in in which case you want to kind of, of course, babysit them, but they have a, a strength of a clinging quality to them more so than the other cups. That's maybe the biggest difference I've seen. But now we're down to pretty much a good kind of consistent style, which is basically very similar to a normal cup. It's just with a little bit more flair. And I think they're a little bit bigger on average. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. 
These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, I know that when I bought the commercial cups, there's like small, medium, and large. Honestly, for me, and I've got some cups of yours. One of the things I like is that there's like something that's in between medium and large, like from the commercial cup point of view, that seems to work really well. The sizing is, yeah, it's, it's a little different. For one, it fits my hand, but the other is... God, this is like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know? The small cups are often too small. The big ones are usually too big. The medium ones, depends on the run that you get. Sometimes you get some good ones and sometimes you don't. So there's that. But, uh, you know, you were talking about the flare, the flare and the finish on the flare. I noticed that as a glass, ex-glass blower, the finish on the flare. But yeah, there is something about that flare. You were talking about it staying on well, yes, but again, I, I come back to the comfort piece because th there's something about the way it interacts with the tissue. It's not like drawing it through this constrained area. It's more like drawing it into this like amphitheater. <laughs> you know, it's like, like an entry hall. It just, it interacts with the tissue differently because of the flare that you got on it. That, I mean, that's what I've noticed. That's just me. Wow. Yeah, thank you. That's, you know, I don't often get a chance to verbalize the experience that I, I have with them. But yes, I've used the cups a lot and they definitely, just the tissue sort of sinks into them a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more easily. I think I especially like them on the areas around uh, the medial to the scapula, which so many people, I mean, everybody knows who's doing this. That's the the biggest area, you know, for so many people where they're holding tension or whatever, but it can really just pull. And, you know, my techniques might be a little bit different. I do tend to, because I trust the strength of the suction, I just trust it. I know it's not going to pop off unless I want it to. So I often will pull, sometimes quite strongly, as I'm moving the cup. Sometimes I'll push or sometimes I'll just be neutral. But the nice thing that you can do with this is you can pull lift up, in other words, the cup as you're moving it slowly as you might normally, but you're also lifting at the same time. And that creates even more space, especially in this mid-scapula area. Yes, I have noticed, and I picked that up from uh, Bruce Bentley when I studied some cupping with him, that there's a way that you can kind of lift and slide at the same time. And it is such a lovely gliding feeling for me as a practitioner like ooh, you know something's really coming loose here and for the patient that sense of relief and release because everything is now under the influence of anti-gravity right like gravity is suspended for a moment when you're using cups and and man our human tissues just don't get a chance to experience that very often it is very 
profound, I think, in the way that it moves blood and fluids and, and allows uh, the fascia to kind of stretch itself out a little bit. Yeah, this is why I love the running cupping. I don't know how well it's done. I mean, it, it was just the thing that we learned in SIOM, right, in, in the Seattle Institute of uh, now East Asian Medicine. That was pretty much the main cupping that I learned there. But, you know, where we are now, there's plenty of people that do cupping, but nobody does a running cupping of the dozens of people that I've heard about it. So I don't know if it's regional or whatever, but I really like doing that in the way that you were describing is as you're repeatedly going over the same area very slowly, that it's self-evidently helping the area. The tissue is self-evident, not only to me, but to the person lying there. They're like, wow, it's just getting lighter and lighter and lighter the more that you go. And you can't sort of say, well, I don't know if that worked or not, because it definitely worked. There's no doubt about it. And I like that. And I think the patients like that kind of certainty, you know, like, well, we definitely loosen that area up. You know it. I know it. They feel great. Usually when I do the cupping, people get really quiet and, you know, maybe they're chatting like just as a habit or whatever early on, but then they quickly settle down doing cupping. I mean, with acupuncture too, of course, but, you know, the cupping kind of quiets them in a, in a special way, I think. It does, doesn't it? I've noticed that as well. You know, the other thing I've noticed with cups, I mean, you can put your hands on people and you can feel things. Whether you're palpating deeply or just working on the surface, uh, you can feel things, right? There's a lot of dynamic action happening in the tissues. The thing that's cool about cupping is that the cup is kind of an amplifier for what's happening in the tissues. And so if you're paying attention to your hands and paying attention to the cup, you can really feel into what's going on in the tissues. Absolutely. Often feel like I've got, like a, I guess I'll call it a listening hand, maybe on the low back. And I'm cupping up at the shoulder and you can tell a lot. I'm maybe, maybe you cup with one hand and you're feeling with another hand and Lo and behold, just the feeling hand, which may be far away from the cup, is doing all kinds of stuff. And you know, oh gosh, there's a big interconnection here. Does that person feel it too? Does this, what does this mean diagnostically? Do I adjust my maybe acupuncture treatment or, or even my cupping? Do I start cupping down there too? Whatever. But think of that as twain I. I like to do a twain I, partly diagnostically, but also with cupping. I think cupping can be quite diagnostic and therapeutic. Agreed. I found that as well. So how do people get a hold of these cups if they want one? I mean, are you, yeah, I mean, if somebody wanted cups like handmade, support Americans in rural America, best cups, maybe at least shooting at best cup in the world, how do they find them? Where do you go to get them? Cups are available. You can't get them at Walmart. <laughs> No, if, if you buy one there, it'll just break in the car. Just like my mirror. It was the mirror snap. I'll never get over that. I did want to say cups come in different colors. I at least want to mention, so the main cup, and I think a lot of people, they want them to be clear. And I definitely get that. So there are cups that I have that are um, colored. We can make those. I have, I'm looking at a set right now, and some of my favorite colors have like stripes you know, they're either a, a very light kind of solid opaque color, or maybe he does some striping to that. I know no one else can see that, but you can see that showing it up there. 
there's some stripes and stuff, but I understand people are, maybe they don't want to have it opaque or they don't want to have it, you know, with color because they're worried about maybe missing a spot when they're cleaning it or whatever. So we talk about that and I don't really know what is going to captivate people's interests more. I think that all the cups are beautiful and that's part of it. You want to hold something beautiful when you do this. Life is short and I want to offer to people something beautiful that they can hold and feel very special and the wonder of life in their work. So anyhow, we do have like blue and kind of a pink, kind of a green cup, some yellow cups. And, you know, the colors are easy to do. So if people want color in the cups, they can. That's not available on the website, but they can email us. And um, I'd be happy to make some more. I have several that I use, and I do plan to um, have some of those up on the web too. We just don't have those up yet. So right now, mainly it's clear cups. We thought those were the main ones people might want to get. Yeah, I'm kind of a clear cup guy. I know that I like to be able to see the changes that are happening in the tissues. I'm, I'm always keeping an eye on that. Depending on what the color is like. I mean, I can I can kind of tell what's going on underneath. But yeah, the cups right now are available on our website, which is handmadeholisticsingularholistic.com. And um, that's the name of the business. And they can see the cups there and they can meet the glass blowers and see what you're up to with handmade tools. Everything, we've got a lot of great pictures on there. I had a really fun photo shoot with a local person who takes all the school pictures and stuff. And I got to know her and she's wonderful. And I went over there and beautiful day. And we took lots of great pictures and cups aren't easy to take pictures of. Actually, they're kind of hard. No, no, they're tricky. Trust me, photographing glass, not easy. Yeah, definitely. So we've got some really good pictures that show what it looks like in the hand, all the different angles and stuff. But I do want to say, I guess I'm the only couple things I'm a little, I guess, shy about with the cups is because they're each unique, they are basically standard, but there can be little variations. In getting a cup like this, that's part of the deal. Like it's going to have a little variation. Now, if somebody were to get this and say, ah, this doesn't have the flair that I wanted it to, you know, they can just email and I'll, I would do, um, figure something out, just probably send them a different cup or talk about it and show them some cups or whatever and figure out what they're actually looking for. So there can be some variation, but it's a small variation. Yeah. That goes with anything handmade. It's going to have its own character to some degree. I can tell you as a former glassblower, they're beautifully blown cups. That's for sure. Thank you. I really feel that. I feel his, um, he's been doing the glass blowing for a long time. I feel very fortunate that we have that relationship and I think he's doing an amazing job. I'm honored by his interest in it and, uh, well, your interest in it too, but you know, the whole thing is, uh, backed by some great people. Well, it's wonderful to have great tools and it's, I think it's also wonderful to know that, the people that made the tool are people. And, uh, you know, if you got some kind of connection with them, well, you know, the chi is a little stronger in that tool then. You know what I mean? That's how I feel with a lot of my handmade stuff. Well, with the cups and just other things I have, I feel like it's, if you can do it because it makes a difference. And again, like life is short. So I want to really, for myself, 
doing the work, but also for the person receiving the work. Well, Kevin, as always, it's great to hang out with you. Thank you so much for taking a little time and sharing with us the uh, cups made in America. They are. All those stories of the people and their process, their artistic statement, like what they think about the details you know, of their craft, that's all up on our website too. I've asked people, everybody involved, to write a little something about kind of what they feel and what they think about their craft and this project. So they have their own statements on there and you can learn about that too. Maiden fire. Good stuff. All right, my friend. Thanks for today. Thank you, Michael. It's been very nice. I appreciate that. I loved hearing Kevin say, as a proud resident of Western New York, I find it immensely meaningful that everything we produce is crafted in our extreme rural region. It's inspiring to see how our community has come together to create something that's truly special. And that, my friends, that is community in action. And beyond that, it's skin in the game, which I think is the not-so-secret for creating joy, improving your own and others' economic well-being, and keeping your liver happy as well. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, Share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. 